everyone. I wanted to say thank you for tuning in and for bearing with us through some sound difficulties. We're doing our best to keep bringing you content through this crisis as we figure out how to engage with each other from a distance. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the show. Share the Load is a time to reflect on the division of labor within our personal relationships. When it comes to the emotional, manual, financial, and domestic burden, how do our evolving views on sex, love, gender roles, and power dynamics determine how we share responsibility? I'm your host, Mia Schachter. I'm an intimacy coordinator for film, TV, and theater, and a writer and educator in Los Angeles. Today, I'm talking to Stella Hartman. She is a writer who focuses on self-love and finding peace in a quarantined world. Hi, Stella. Hey. (laughs) How's it going? It's good. Welcome to the place that I've been quarantined the most for the past, like, two weeks. Yeah. Well, it looks like a cozy place to be. Yeah. It's been good. I feel like I'm in a good spot in Echo Park, and we've been really lucky with, like, where we've had to quarantine. Cool. I'm glad to hear that. It must be – I am also fortunate to have people around, um – I've been really feeling for my friends who live by themselves right now. I know. Everyone in self-isolation, I think, is, like, really struggling in ways that I haven't seen before. Yeah. So lots of, like, FaceTiming and, like, video hangouts and all that stuff. Yeah, and walks. It's, like... Walking is That's like the number right one. Now. I'm like, I wake up in the, like, I don't have a job anymore. So I'm like, I got to do my walk. That's like my, me going to work now. Yeah. I mean, my therapist says, just make sure that you go outside once a day, at least once a day. Yeah. Makes a big um, difference. Yeah. It makes a big, big, big difference. Fresh air and sunlight and just moving around. Yeah. Um. So when you were growing up, Um, Mm -hmm. how did you see labor divided in your family? Um, very confusingly. Cool. Um, and I think that part of it had to do with like both my parents being immigrants and, um, being like first generation American, seeing how other friends maybe, um, had those labors split in their household but for the most part when my dad was home he wasn't it was like very traditional like african um household expectations where like the man's not really doing any household chores and like you know he's like coming home dinner's got to be made um not you know too unlike a 1950s like housewife um, you know, situation, which is also like kind of dripping in misogyny. And I think my dad was like, not aware hmm. of that. Um, cause I think he liked to think of himself as someone that was very fair. And, you know, I saw my mom as someone who was like very begrudgingly taking on those emotional labors. Um, hmm. and I think that the other thing that I saw was like a very, big lack of emotional support for her um like I don't really think my dad was doing that much emotional labor to sort of meet her halfway 
Um, so I didn't really have like good examples of that growing up, to be quite honest. Um, and I don't, I never really knew what that was, but I think like learning the term emotional labor was probably like one of the more powerful events of my life. Cause I was like, that's what that is. Like this opens up a whole new world for me and I can now do a much better job of communicating with people in regards to that. And for me, I do like a lot of balance as far as like, um, in a partnership or in relationships when it comes to emotional labor. How do you, um, do you remember learning the term emotional labor? Like how did that come yeah. into your psyche? I remember learning it, but it was like not that long ago. I think it was like <laughs> five, no. Yeah. Maybe like five, four or five years ago. Um, and I had this friend, Shirley, who her and her partner, Emily were like always kind of my you hear know, like a go-to couple where you're like they're really like learning and like progressing and you know they have like all these terms and I'm like oh you guys really go to therapy a lot okay let me just like <laughs> absorb some of this and she was the first person that told me about what emotional labor was and at the time I was like in, I was in this relationship where I was doing so much emotional labor and it didn't understand that it was work I thought it was just an emotional state of being and I think the distinction between being emotional and doing emotional labor is huge because it takes the, some of the onus off of you in a way. Right. And you realize that this should be part of the dynamic of us functioning and not like something I'm just bringing to the table and it's not being addressed or acknowledged. Right. I think also like, you know, girls are raised to be more aware of their emotions and encouraged to share their emotions. And so mm -hmm. emotional labor comes a lot more easily to us and, and for those same reasons is expected of us. Yeah. So there's like, you know, it's, I don't like to point fingers and blame like, and blame men certainly for like putting, you know, putting that burden on us. Cause I think it's something that it's it's hard to say like I'm being blamed for this when we also like um, we take we take that on right and like we're already doing right. it and then oftentimes like by the time that we're burnt out on it we're only just realizing like how yes. much it's been kind of expected and yeah um, you know it everything for me like comes back to the the wheel of consent are you familiar with the wheel of consent at all. No, but I would like okay. to learn. <laughs> okay. Well, there's, I'll, sh I'll share something with you later. Um, but, but there's a, an area in the wheel of consent, the one quadrant called, um, the accepting quadrant and it's, mm -hmm. it's opposed to the serving quadrant. And so, you know, if one person's serving, the other person's accepting mm -hmm. and the way that that becomes, uh, non-consensual is when the accept, the person in the accepting quadrant starts to feel entitled to it and starts yeah. to forget about the gratitude component of it yeah. and starts to feel like, um, you know, and then they start to seem spoiled and privileged and like they, uh, then the other person gets burnt out because there's no gratitude. So that, but that's actually a dynamic that like keeping, keeping that dynamic, the serving accepting dynamic consensual is, um, the responsibility of both parties. Definitely. Not just of the person like doing doing the accepting. Like both parties have to say, 
you know, this person serving has to say like, this is actually like the limit of that. This is the limit of my resources. This is how much I have to give. Yeah. Um, I think is that something that, sorry, go ahead. That's probably where I was in that relationship at the time of like just giving, giving, giving. And at some point the accepting feels like taking if it's not yeah. balanced. And I felt like I was voicing, you know, being like, I don't really want to be doing this that much anymore. Can you pick up the slack? Or I feel really tired, you know, doing these things. Um, but I think the other thing about that relationship was it was, you know, I was in a relationship with a white man. And I think there was where I thought most of the emotionally where I was doing was like just in the household and just, you know, like domestic responsibilities, there was actually so much more that was also imbued in like my ethnicity and like his white male privilege that I just had such a big education afterwards about mm -hmm. the different types of, it felt like for me, emotional labor that I was doing. Yeah. Well, that, does bring us to the conversation that we had the last time I spoke to you. But before we go there, I just yeah. wanted to ask, like, now do you see any kind of shift in, in that kind of responsibility in your parents? Like, has that kind of been brought to anyone's awareness? You mean as far as, like, how they did they process or, like, they act in their emotional labor? Yeah, like, do you think that um, anything has changed in, in their dynamic as these kind of words and, and vocabulary have started to kind of circulate more, like, prevalently in our culture? I think no. <laughs> and I think it, like, I think it is harder for some cultures, and I really don't, so th this is just me saying that my parents are immigrants and they're coming from a whole entire world where you don't even talk about like severe mental issues. Right. So like going into the conversation, emotional labor is very, you know, almost like taboo. And I think I've tried to address it in ways that I think it was that I thought would be accessible to them. Um, you know, like talking to my mom more about like, boundaries and these are mm -hmm. emotional boundaries and these are my boundaries and I think you know sometimes my dad is just like I don't really know what you're talking about but interestingly enough I see him without him like using any verbiage or anything like that enacting a more balanced emotional labor in his new relationship well mm -hmm. new as in like it's 10 years with another partner Versus my mom, who keeps saying she has the intention of wanting to do that more, but then, like, you know, doesn't know how. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, everyone just learns so differently, and I can only imagine that it is probably kind of a leap if you're, you know, both my parents are older. They're, like, in their 70s, so it's definitely, like, a jump for them, I think. Yeah, I think we also probably just get so comfortable in these roles right like and mm -hmm. they just they really solidify into habits in our bodies and our minds and like if you're comfortable being a caretaker and like the nourisher and the nurturer it's really hard to to step back from that yeah or if you think that's the only role for you 
Right. You know? Right. If you don't really see other other options modeled for you, it's yeah, it can be really hard. Yeah. Um. So the last time we saw each other, um, we were talking about uh the situation that you were in at home. Um, yeah. and I'd love <laughs> to check in on where you're at with that now. Um, do you need me to explain? Yeah, whatever you think. Or? Yeah, for my eight for, listeners. For all the listeners out there, um, I mean, I think that a it, it was so fun to talk about with you because it, it was, like, definitely layered, and it seemed like, you know, you had been in a similar experience at some point, and um, I was kind of in a place where I like, needed help unpacking all of that. Um, and in this household, I think, you know, the interesting thing is that there's two males, two females, and both of the females, which, you know, I'm a part of, we're kind of like not, I, I would say, you know, we're not really into playing into like typical, I don't know, gender roles and I know like I don't really like doing that either like I'll kind of like I feel more fluid and I'll like switch back and forth so sometimes it's just like behavior on the on the male side where we're like no we didn't like that (laughs) um and then the other interesting thing is one of the roommates um is very like fabulously gay and um it's also white and one of the females is a black woman. And I think you kind of, and I'm the, I'm the newer roommate. So I've kind of entered this household and I'm like, great, you know, like we've got, you know, these different ranges and it's going to be fantastic. And like, I can't wait. And I, this is kind of where I see myself fitting in. And it was sort of this like surprising turn of, realizing that oh no privilege still plays like a really strong role here um and maybe being a little bit naive about thinking that that wouldn't happen and one thing that I hadn't talked about that much with my friends at the time was you know white homosexual male privilege um and I think that there was some things that were happening in the house where you know, I just never thought we'd have to talk about before. Um, and some of the things were just more like personality style. Like this person was taking up a lot of space. This person was having a hard time realizing that the house was just not, was not just theirs, but for everyone. Uh, and I'm trying, I know I'm like trying to be a little bit general about it. I'm trying not to be too specific. Yeah. Um, but I think the whole, what it came down to was just feeling like, okay, clearly we're not being given space. We're both women of color. We're not being given space. And we're also not being given space to like voice our concerns. Um, and it got to the point where it felt very aggressive without, you know, but without any air of violence. If yeah, that makes yeah. Sense. emotionally aggressive yeah and so you know we we had a chat and everyone sat down 
and we talked about it. And Since I spoke to you? No. So oh. we talked about it and, you know, it was very optimistic that it was going to turn into, you know, a point of learning. There was a big lesson to be learned there. And I think, you know, what was said was like, okay, here you. I'll try to be better about sharing the space and I want you all to feel like this is your home. And the responses are great, but it's definitely action over words in this case because it's an, you know, intimate way to live with people. And so when that didn't change, things got worse. And, um, you know, the other thing that came into play was that the other woman of color was feeling like she was also specifically being treated in a way that, she didn't really appreciate um and so it was like okay now we have like racism gender maybe a little bit of like not classism but like socioeconomic like clearly that person had like a very different family upbringing than her and I had had mm-hmm. Um, and it was just like, how are we supposed to talk to this person? What are we supposed to do? Like, what do we need to do? What actions can we take? Clearly that last conversation didn't work. And the funny thing about your conversation with me is that we were like, you're like, oh, you know, yeah, like we solved the problem. Yeah, they we just need to get white fragility. <laughs> yeah. I was like, let's get educated. White fragility. I was like, so excited. I was like, yes, we're going to do this together. Like, you know, because ideally a solution to a problem like that is something that people can all engage in. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to get the book. I'm going to like, you know, we'll talk about it. We'll have like book club. Yeah. So <laughs> Utopia. I'm like, yeah. So I'm like <laughs> skipping home and, and I'm like, Oh my God, it's going to be wonderful. It turns out both of the white men in the house had already read it. <laughs> and I was just like, wait, what? I was like, okay. Um, and so then at that point, I think that's maybe the, the last where I had updated you. Yeah. You just had texted me like, you know, uh, like womp surpri- womp. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. surprise uh, twist. Um, yeah, because I had read, read the book and I was like, oh. I'm going to read it. I'm going to, you know. Well, have you read it now? So I, I got the audio book and I'm like going through it. Because I do, I, I wonder about like, is it even appropriate to like, for me to be recommending it to a person of color? But I think that it's actually, I mean, my, my hunch is that, and you can speak, speak to this if you feel like you've gotten far enough. I don't know, but I think everyone should read it. Yeah. Because I think that like, even if you, because you're, you are engaging with, with white people about racism. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of my history with emotional labor is very much tied to that more than I ever thought in Mm. the past. And so that's been like a big learning lesson for me. So upon finding out that, you know, that had already been read and digested by the two of them, I think I was just like, okay, so then, you know, what's going on? Um, And I think it is very different to like read something like that and maybe just like passively agree with it versus like stepping out into the world and figuring out, okay, how can I be actionable about it? And I think a lot of the things that I have questioned, you know, some other white friends on was, you know, like, do you understand, do you understand allyship? Like, do you understand how to like step up and have that conversation? Do you understand why it's so important? Do you understand that, 
you know, just by being in a relationship with a person of color, you should come in with the mindset of like, okay, not only am I going to be romantically involved with this person, but I'm also this person's ally because it is, you know, the responsibility of white people to have that role and play that role. Um, but that is a hard conversation to have if like that person's never done it before or they think they are an ally and they are an ally, but it's almost in this like removed way, you know, like I'm sure that, and I know that, you know, the two white men in the house are very supportive of people of color, you know, financially or, you know, just emotionally and they have that capacity. But I think the whole having a conversation from one white person to another white person on behalf of another person of color is a whole other practice and a whole other exercise and is a whole other like stepping out of your comfort zone that doesn't get talked about enough. And well, so and that was exactly, sorry, I feel like this, there's like a slight delay and there's no way I'm not going to, we're not going to, oh, no, I'm sorry. Um, but that, that was exactly the point that came up when we were talking where I was like, oh, well they should read this book then. Yeah. Like, cause I, I think when we were talking, I was like, that's a hundred percent the responsibility of the other white guy. And mm -hmm. it sounded like that was something that you had kind of thought, but that like, Maybe yeah. I was just being like a seconding, you know, like motion on that. Um, yeah. Well, but it was something that I thought and you were seconding it. I think that what was happening at the time was that person didn't want to do it. Right. Because it wasn't affecting him. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which is. Well, yeah. I mean, that, that's, <laughs> a really, that, that, that's a really solipsistic like view of yourself I think like if something is affecting your partner I would think that it that you would want to take that on mm -hmm. um, but again maybe that's like my social conditioning as a female that is my social conditioning as well and, and like to me that is what an ally would do um right. I do think that like it's natural to have a moment of like Oh, maybe it feels like I'm being made to pick sides. Maybe I don't want to talk to this person. Well, it's uncomfortable. It's, it's uncomfortable, uncomfortable, and that's fine. But at the right. same time, th I think this is like the new thing of what like we all need to be practicing, which is like I need to get better at being like, hey, I I really need an ally in this. Can you do this? Can you like take this emotional labor off for me and have this conversation? Because I'm also not great at that. This is very like that's new for me, and this has been fantastic because that's something that I'm starting to now ask of in my relationships because now mm. I'm very aware of how important that is to me. I was never asking for allyship before. I didn't even know what that was. Like, you know, emotional labor was still new. And, so, you know, I'm taking these baby steps. But the beautiful thing about, you know, once you get over your ego, which <laughs> is, you know, what ended up happening with this person is that, when you witness someone being an ally for you, which I hadn't also because I hadn't asked for a lot, but I had not witnessed a lot is that it just gives you so many different forms of validation that you didn't really know that you had before. Um, and also you kind of just learn how language is different from ally to ally, because yeah. I think, maybe where I would have been sending out a message coming from like a place of trauma and a place of like, 
emotional sadness or anger or frustration, you know, the ally gets to be removed and like take that out of the messaging and just deliver an, a more straightforward message, I think. Um, yeah, that's, that's honestly, that's like bringing tears to my eyes because it actually, it occurred to me as you were saying that, that like allyship can actually be incredibly intimate. Yes, extremely. Yeah. And, and asking, being able to ask someone for that kind of service, like, again, I'll show you the, the wheel, but like being able to, in your relationship, in any relationship, like actually make that request and be coming from a place of like trust and knowing that that person will want to do that for you is like intimate. It's intimate. The ask is intimate, but the action of doing it is then like really intimacy building, I would think. Yes. And it was so, so let me take a sip. So the, one of the males wrote this like wonderful letter to, you know, the other roommate that was being problematic and, um, after we last spoke. Yes. Okay. And it was like so spot on and definitely delivered in a way that I could have never done Mm -hmm. directly myself because I would have been feeling, I would have been in my emotional space and that language would have been coming from that emotional space. Um, and so to read it was in itself was like an education for me. And then also it was so intimate and almost to the point where like both, so me and the other woman of color, we were just like in the kitchen, like looking at the letter, like dumbfounded, like, Mm. whoa, Hmm. because we had never seen that level of allyship before. And we're so used to like, kind of just like screaming, like, I don't have space. Like I'm not being given a voice or like whatever it is that's happening to us through, you know, the privilege play. I'm not sure what the right words would be there that are happening that when the allyship, when the act of allyship came through, we were just dumbfounded. It was like, Oh, what are we supposed to do now? Cause we don't <laughs> know. You know, like, what do we do with ourselves? Cause usually we'd, we'd be like still fighting or yeah. Or like, right. yeah, exactly. And it was kind of really cool. And it was like, Oh, I guess, you don't do anything and you can kind of like relax a little bit and just know that, you know, somebody else has your back and the onus isn't supposed to be all on you. I just um, saw in you like a full relaxation. Yeah, because I remember yeah. reading it and you're like, what? And then you're like, oh. Okay. Right, like bracing yourself and then you're like, oh, I can like let go of this tension. Yeah, and I think that's when I realized like so much of those conversations you are in some form and another coming from a place of trauma because you feel like you're not being given what you need. It's not consensual in some way. And, you know, to have someone speak up for that, I think we really need, we really need to be practicing that so much more. Yeah. I was going to, as you were talking about this, like this is something that I've thought about before. I was, I was dating, um, a person of color for several months um, up until recently. And I actually, one of the main reasons why um, it became, he told me later uh, that we, that he actually didn't want to continue pursuing a deeper relationship was because I'm white. And, um, and, but like during the 
the relationship, like there were moments where I thought like, you know, I work in boundaries for a living and I was like, wouldn't it be cool if he were down to, and I never asked and I kind of like, I don't know why I didn't ask, but I was like, it would be really cool if we could like practice before it's necessary. Yes. Um, yeah. Like taking, giving and taking feedback on, yes. on both of our privileges. Like, you know, we, we both had some privileges that the other one didn't have. Like he was an incredibly attractive man. So like yeah. there's certain things that go along with that. Oh, totally. Um, you know? Yeah. And, and so there were, I, I kind of felt like there were, there was like, the possibility of us both being on both sides of that conversation. And like, definitely, I had wanted to bring up the possibility of like practicing that conversation and we never got there. But, um, but I wonder like, is that something that you think would be helpful like in your home dynamic or in, in these dynamics, like more theoretically than like your actual life right now? Uh, what would that look like? I think so. Weird, true story. Um, the, you know, problematic roommate that's talking about before ended up has like is subleasing another uh, place. Right. And we've kind of had this like new roommate come in Mm. Um, and they haven't, they've been here for like about a month. So, you know, it's like we were, we were starting to be quarantined not long after and it was like, okay, how do we get along with this roommate? What is the dynamic with this roommate? Uh, They're a little bit older, and I think have also is also very used to living with people, so they're good about giving space, and it has felt more communal. But the surprising thing is that this roommate and I have now like have feelings for each other. Oh wow! Um, yeah, which we're both like, how the hell did that happen? Um, you know, and it's like, is it quarantine or is it love? Mm. We don't know. Um, <laughs> but he is a white male and <laughs> I just like you're just you're like the way you said that <laughs> like it makes me tired like just the idea of it makes me tired and I think that's because I was so burnt out I haven't been in like a serious relationship with a white, a white male in like five years and mm-hmm. that was like a proactive that was a choice on my part. I was like, I can't do this right now because I still don't know how to, I was still learning what emotionally really means to me. But at this point I've had like enough of an education and I've learned enough about myself to like, just from the get go, I think when we realized we had feelings for each other, um, he was asking, you know, like, what, what are you looking for in a romantic partner? You know, like what, what works for you? You have really sweet questions. And I was like, well, guess what? I'm not going to talk about that. What I am going to talk about is allyship. Um, because I think that in, so that idea that you had, I think is such a wonderful idea of, you know, what if we could have this conversation from the beginning? And that is what I'm trying to do. Um, so they are in the process of, reading white fragility and um i think it's just unfortunate that you know sometimes that that emotional labor does have to be done by a person of color to an extent because it's not like society has gotten to a point where this is common practice so i think part of it is me having to understand that not every white man that i'm with is like personally trying to 
um, treat me a certain way, part of it is a conditioning that they need to unlearn. And then the second thing is, you know, making my requests accessible. So, you know, this is what allyship means to me. This is when I would like for someone to step up for me. This is when I would like someone to use their voice for me. Um, if you don't have a good understanding of what that is, here's a good resource. And right. this is the first time that I've ever set that as, you know, just like put it out there in a relationship as new as this. And I don't even know if it's a relationship. Like that's how new it is. We're just, you know, having these feelings for each other. Exploratory phase. Exploratory phase. But like it can't hurt. And no matter what, even if a romantic partnership doesn't work out, you always need an ally. Right. So it's just a good time to do it. And it was received well. They were an active listener. They put their ego aside. They're very open to it. You know, like I'm going to take the time upon myself to learn more. I'm going to take the time to have conversations with my friends who, you know, maybe seem to be doing this for themselves, like other white people that might be doing this. And I thought that was great. And like, you know, I also felt like this huge sense of relief about that because it, I just, knew that by doing that I already like have gotten rid of some of the behavioral patterns that I would have had in past relationships because those boundaries have already been set and that person's already aware so I'm actually very excited to see how it plays out but we actually we just had this conversation maybe like four days ago wow <laughs> it's like very new I I, can I ask, like, who brought it up and how did you, how did it go? Like, I love these kinds it, of, if you don't want to talk about it. We, oh, no, it's fine. He's, he's like, he's very, very sweet. So he, I think he was like all ca caught up in the romance. And I was like, yeah, well, you know, it's not romantic, you're privileged and you're not being aware of your privilege. And I kind of <laughs> came down a little hard. But that's just, I'm a, I can be like a little bit of a, like a tough love person. Oh, that conversation. I was wondering about like, how did you finally get to a point where you wanted to say like, I like you? Oh, oh God. <laughs> that was, that was weird. That actually, um, I think we've been both, these times are so strange. Yeah. I cannot, I cannot stress that enough. Um, and I think being in the house, being with the same people in the house, not really being able to leave the house, you, you get into your routine, you know, you do what you, you want to do. And I think what it looked like was like, oh, this person's kind of aligning with my routine and what I'm doing. And it seems like they have a similar style doing it. And then it was like, oh, well, maybe we should do those things together because it seems fun. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, we don't want to do everything on our own. And then it became, it kind of moved from being like collaborative to more, you know, oh shit, we, we like are crushing on each other. <laughs> and then that's when we kind of both did this double take and was like, uh, and, and we're like, wait, are we just like friends or is there something more? And it was like at the end of dinner or something. And I think we're, we're putting a movie on and he like popped on the couch. I was like, Hey, I think I like you. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I think I like you too. And neither of us was like ready for that. So it was kind of like a, here we go, but also excited. 
kind of feeling and also hoping that we don't get sick of each other because we're probably trapped in the house for another month. So I know. There's I love quarantine that. love. It's so sweet. <laughs> it's I love so weird. <laughs> but it's also like it's just such a unique time and I'm I'm really you know, I'm I'm obviously like trying to stay as optimistic and like grateful as I possibly can, but like yeah. the I'm I'm really excited to see the stories of like the beautiful growth that comes yeah. out of this. Like yeah. are you familiar at all with the term um post-traumatic growth? No, but, but you I already imagine. like it. I already yeah. like it. <laughs> right. So it's like it's it's not that it's like the opposite of PTSD, but it's like mm-hmm. um it's one of the kind of manifestations potentially of PTSD or the coping mechanisms that prevent you from internalizing the like the trauma. Um I'm not, you know, I'm not an expert on this, but, but the idea is that like whatever, you know, both on a sort of societal level and also on a personal level that like through trauma, there's also growth. Yeah. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot of that. I mean, we're going to see a lot of that and that's what agree. I'm looking forward to. Yeah. And I don't, you know, obviously not everyone's in this place, but one thing that we keep checking in with each other on is that it feels like in some way that's happening at, a much faster rate than yeah. what we're used to. Right. Cause we're seeing it live. Like even, even like figuring out, you know, we're all having to be so creative and so mm-hmm. inventive with like figuring out how to keep our lives going and figuring out how to make money. Mm-hmm. Um, like I was just talking uh, to Pete right before we started about figuring out, like I took, I took a dance class on Instagram live this morning mm-hmm. and I, there were 50 people in it and I and it was my friend and I was like if everyone Venmoed him five dollars he'd be making like a decent living if he did this every day and and then I thought like I don't really have anything like that like I don't have anything to teach or sell and I actually don't think that's true so I'm yeah I disagree yeah I'm I'm gonna try to figure it out and maybe you'll brainstorm with me later but yes um, but I was gonna um so this like this practice taking feet feedback idea. Um, and you were also talking about like reading and digesting and what it mm-hmm. sounds like was happening was that these people that you're living with were actually reading, but not really digesting. Yes. They were kind of reading and they were like, Oh yes. You know, check the box of like, I read this book. Yes. Um, without necessarily the introspection and, and examination. One of the things that fascinated me the most about white fragility was like the stories of people who electively took her workshops. I don't know if you've gotten to this part yet, but like she talks about it numerous times about the book, like people who voluntarily went to her workshops and then got called out for doing something that was very indicative of their privilege or very insensitive or offensive. Um, you know, like imitating like a black voice like, and someone was like, hey, here's why that's like, don't do that. And then oh th- that God. person starts crying and sobbing yeah. and taking up all the space in the room. And then everyone else in the room gets mad at Robin D'Angelo for like attacking this person, you know? And I just was like, this is absurd to me. Like you chose to be here. If you mm-hmm. think that you are immune to this kind of behavior and and microaggressions or larger aggressions. Yeah. Like, what are you doing here? And what kind of hope is there? So I think I know why some people do that. Do you? Um, yeah, I think that in some ways, and I say some people, and this is because I have a mother who's a narcissist. Um, <laughs> and I think 
So in like the technical term, like, you know, I like, yeah, I didn't mean to she, laugh at that. It was just, no, like, she just is. And it's a scary thing. It's a, it is kind of a really scary thing. And I think that people who are, who are on like the scale of narcissism, it can lead them to seemingly, you know, look like someone who maybe is an ally or is progressive or is supportive. Um, but there's a difference between something being performative, right? Going through the motions, inauthentic, yeah. Versus actually, you know, embracing what that means. And I think a lot of times, getting called out in those instances where you are performing probably feels like a shock because it is all ego based, right? Right. Well, in the the so many of us have a knee-jerk reaction to like any kind of criticism that's like mm-hmm. just defensiveness. Exactly. And I don't remember if I felt like this crystallized for me in because of reading the book or something that I already thought about. I, I think it was something I had already been thinking about just in, in like other areas. But like I feel like we can train ourselves to use – defensiveness and also jealousy actually instead of looking at them as like uh like kind of just on the face of what they are Mm -hmm. looking at them as um you know kind of like a pavlovian bell of like oh shut up yeah (laughs) you know like shut up look look a little deeper if i'm getting defensive and i'm getting jealous it's because i'm insecure so instead of speaking let me look at myself as and figure out what it is that this is what the insecurity is that this is talking what is on. the real issue yeah and that's amazing that's like the first half of like nonviolent communication yes it's like yes taking a step away from what you're saying and, and realizing like what needs do i have that aren't being met or why is it that i'm actually feeling this way i love that you just brought up that book I, so yeah. I, I was thinking, I tried to do that with my mom and she didn't get it. And that's, a, and that's when I was like, okay, I can't help you. Anymore. Well, that one's also a tough one because it's written by a white man. And, I know. And, and, it's, but, and it's also written in this way where like, I feel like sometimes if anyone spoke to me with the exact language that he writes in his conversations, I would mm-hmm. want to like punch them in the face. Like not like, do it. <laughs> because sometimes it's so, it's so condescending. It's like, yeah. it, it can sound really condescending. But I think that he's also not writing like verbatim what he actually I says. And this is maybe like unpopular opinion, but like I don't think it was he's like a great writer. Where I feel like right. obviously right. very powerful concepts, really great to learn. But it, it does. I feel like maybe where he thought he was making it accessible, it feels condescending. Yeah, yeah. I, it's, I think you're right. He's not. He's not an excellent writer. Also, his poems like editor needs to cut you know the poems I like thank you Marshall Rosenberg but like it's been a while since I read it but yeah um but I I love that you brought that up because I've been thinking lately about white fragility and nonviolent communication as how they speak to each other because and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this maybe we can meet up later like after you've read white fragility and like bring them into conversation with each other because one thing that comes up in nonviolent communication is um like no matter how someone is talking to you, mm-hmm. that you can identify the need. Mm-hmm. And in White Fragility, the way that she talks about taking feedback, like it doesn't matter if someone is screaming at you or angry with you or, or whatever. Like it doesn't matter the tone and how they say it. That does not negate the heart of the matter. Right. And so I kind of see nonviolent communication as like, 
the other side of it, right? So like nonviolent communication is person A and person B is white fragility. Then like when person A gets feedback or criticism and even if it comes at them, perhaps what feels like aggressively or violently Mm -hmm. emotionally out of a place of anger, that the person, the nonviolent communication person needs to be able to stand there and identify the need and not say, I can't hear you because you're yelling. Right. And I think that's what true allyship is. Right. Um, But, you know, this is where I, this is where I always get kind of muddled up in things because I'm also like an empath and I feel like where I still have a problem with being in the gray is like, all right, well, you know, the expectation of that is a lot. Where's this person with their EQ, you know, (laughs) how much, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, Yeah. this person capable of doing that. And again, this comes to, this comes to like being in a room with a therapist, my mom and, and the, in that book and us being like, she's just not understanding it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like mental blocks are, are a really real thing. Um, well, how much of that do you think is like, I don't know if it's possible to even parse this out. Your mom is a complete and complex human being, but like, yeah. do you think, how much of that do you think is cultural and how much of that do you think is? For her, I thought it was very cultural. She's Colombian. I think if you are completely stereotyping, Colombians are known for like their fieriness and like passion mm-hmm. and kind of like living large in this emotional space. Magic magical realism comes from Colombia. It's like you're just elaborating in your words and your emotions and even in your movements, like through dance. And so if you are of a peacock. Yes. And if you are identify so strongly with that and you are like one with that and she had extreme pride in being that, which, you know, pride is attached to ego she just could not remove herself from that. And because of that, she did, she felt that removing herself from her emotions was stripping herself of her like own identity. And right. she was like, I'm not doing that. Hmm. That's interesting. Cause I don't see it as removing emotions. Right. Like I, and I doubt that I would imagine that you see it similarly. No, like it's, it's just like a processing step. It's right. It's a processing step. And it's also a way to help you get what you need, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's a way to help you actually get what you want more efficiently and effectively um, yeah. based on like language and, and not just verbal language, but like body language and yeah. um, things like that. I think. Yeah. But, but know, I think we, yeah, the, the situation that you're saying with like person A and person B is really interesting. And I think that in an ideal sense, Everyone should be doing that. I know that it's really hard to take feedback when someone's screaming at me. <laughs> yeah, for um, sure. But also, sure. I think in the sense of like a racial dynamic, people should be taught that you probably do need to take a step back and listen to what that person's saying. And well, and also, I think that it comes it comes with like intersections of identity. Like, I think that if 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 you explode. At, you know, because you're stressed and so, and and you've like hit your limit. Mm-hmm. That shouldn't mean that someone then is allowed to like tune you out and tell you right. to calm down. 
Yes, because we all, no one likes that. No one likes that. <laughs> like, don't tell me to calm down. No. Yeah. I know. That's, that's one that's always amazing. Whenever anyone says that, I'm like, has anyone ever said that to you? <laughs> like, does that work? Like, who does that work on? No. That, when someone says calm down, it doesn't make me want to take a breath. No, it's just like, you're not validating me. So you can stop saying that. And that's just, yeah. If someone wanted to say to me, like, can we take a deep breath together? Yeah. That's actionable. I I could, yeah, that's, that's a lot better than like calm down. Um, but I think this also brings us back to like what we were talking about at the beginning about languages as power that you were Mm. saying that like when you learned the term emotional labor, it like cracked your brain open. Oh Yeah. Like the times that I can point to in my life when I've had a word uh, change, like a complete, uh, you know, like shift my worldview just by mm-hmm. understanding that it's um, maybe systemic and not just like yeah. a feeling that I have. Yes. Or, um, you know, like gender, sexuality, like that yes. the vocabulary there just in the last 10 years, I feel like has made us all um, understand like it it has truly cracked open like a world of possibilities for so many of us. And and the wheel of consent, I'm excited for you to see that too, because I feel like that language and that framework busted open like, and completely reframed almost every like relationship that I've had, familial yeah. work, romantic friendship. Um, so, but I think that like what you're talking about with your mom, it almost sounds like it's a semantic issue, right? It's yeah. like that she thinks that it's, you know, emotional repression or like separating herself from her emotions when really it's like that's kind of a, a semantic issue. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Um, and it's – it's. Uh, I think the thing that I become unsure of is because we don't do this a lot is how much – education or time does someone need to put in to like catch someone up you know like how much work would need yeah. to put in for her to figure out that it wasn't semantic right and right. she wasn't getting anything out of like we did probably four more sessions the day that like I just remember looking over at the therapist and her and I were both like huh and my mother is a professor like she's a doctor she has her PhD she's very in, like her IQ you know is I would say high but her EQ is probably a little bit lower than she thought it was. Hmm. And so I could just get really curious about like what kind of work and how much work would it take for her to realize that it wasn't about that. Right. I've been thinking about that a lot in my friendships lately and how I've been starting to feel like certain people in my life have been kind of not even like my deliberate, I haven't been doing this deliberately, but I've started to feel like there's certain people in my life that I've kind of grown out of in a way mm-hmm. because I'm just, our, our like personal journeys are really, um, you know, veering off in different ways. And yeah, I, and I, when I meet new people and I want to, and I'm like kind of determining if there's somebody that I want to keep in my life or, mm-hmm. or if maybe they're more of a, you know, um, like acquaintance or whatever, I'm, I am unconsciously, it's becoming conscious, but like I am unconsciously kind of checking out, like, where are we along that journey? So like if someone, if someone is not on board with like, um, practicing gratitude and instead is, um, you know, maybe like 
obsessed with being or or par- I wouldn't say obsessed but like paralyzed by the guilt that comes from their their privilege for example mm-hmm. instead of maybe looking at um their privilege as like an incredible privilege that they yeah. are grateful for and that they're going to use and take on as a responsibility mm-hmm. like it it can be really hard to you know when when you're just at a completely different place than someone else whether it's like spiritually or emotionally or any of those other things yeah um, it can be I think I think that can be like the make making or breaking point with definitely, and I think like the the I think we need to be more creative in our generosity and like how to be generous within certain types of privilege, like whether it's racial or financial or emotional, um, and that's still something that I'm just realizing and trying to figure out, you know, because I don't think anyone's really taught that either, but because we are living in a time where access to language maybe is just easier because of the internet or access to language is easier because we are learning these things about ourselves as a society historically, um, that it's this sort of like hyper growth where it, and where you know eight eight years ago like I wasn't asking probably half the questions I was asking people now or or kind of like demanding of them which is like if you want to be close if we're going to have an intimate relationship however that relationship is I need these things and um you know, before I probably would have been friends with people that weren't as mindful and weren't as thoughtful, maybe weren't even as generous. And I didn't care, A, because I was just ignorant. Um, and I didn't know how the, what the downside, what the, I just wasn't aware of what the downfalls were there. Mm-hmm. Um, that so. actually, that makes me think of something that you said, that you said earlier that i feel like we kind of glossed over but like mm-hmm. we were t- you were talking about um how you moved into the home and thought like we have so many different like identity intersections here like it's going to be great right? right yeah whereas like in fact it i think the the thing that determines it it's awareness it's like mm-hmm. the awareness issue um of like just because someone's identity contains multiple intersections yes it doesn't mean that they're thinking about it critically it doesn't mean that they are aware of what it means and what it what it represents to other people and like how it makes them interact differently with other other identities and so I don't know if if you want to speak a little bit to that I mean I think that I was just hopeful that (laughs) it would mean that we all were self-aware in how we identified and how maybe maybe that would affect other people in the house um and I think it was probably a bigger learning curve for me because I also saw this person as someone who seemed on the outside to be very supportive Mm -hmm. obviously being a friend with someone and living with someone is a completely different experience. And I think if you were a friend to that person, um, there maybe wouldn't be 
as much issue, but because we were living with that person, it just really magnified so much. And I think this person had privilege in, in, in like a racial sense, a financial sense, a familial sense, like, you know, like even their family, the love that they got from their family. Um, and I think what I was shocked by is that somehow, um, I think sometimes, you know, where I was talking to, where I was speaking to before is that everyone should learn, you know, how to be generous in proportion to, you know, where they're at in, in their role of privilege. Uh, I think that there also is this weird thing where sometimes people will, through the guise of generosity, will also just be a little manipulative. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what was kind of happening where, it, you know, you, I walked in and I was like, okay, great. You know, I, th- I actually thought I was walking into an all queer house, which was, I was super excited about. And then hmm. um, I found out that wasn't the case and I was like, okay, that's fine. I can deal with that too. <laughs> um, but it, it was this thing where I was like, oh, wow, this person is so generous. You know, like, I can't believe that this is happening. You know, like basically like offering up their food every night or like, um, you know, bringing flowers home. And then, you know, at first glance, it's like, oh, those things are really nice and this is really sweet. And then you start to realize like, oh, there's never any space for you to like do that or like bring the flowers home or like if you do, they get, you know, moved somewhere else because that person is, very and I'm just used trying to use like small examples um and the other thing is like sometimes I think what seems like generosity can just be like a a control in disguise of like you're gonna eat my food this is what I'm giving you I you know I'm not really giving you the opportunity to say yes or no I'm just like serving it to you and the expectation is that you're gonna take it um and, and those acts, while maybe they seem to be good to the person who is providing them, is not really consensual. Like, did you ask yeah. me if I want to partake in this? No. Did I receive it, you know, the first couple of times that you provided? Yes. Did I expect that that meant that I, you know, was going to lose my, you know, I always have the capacity to use my voice, but did it seem like I lost the space to use my voice by just accepting that? Yes, it did. And then that's where the line was. And it's just been this really weird and complex and really like fragile and like subtle lesson of this in a household. Because to be honest, I've only ever had a dynamic with like the closest I had to this was just living with a, you know, white male partner. And I think in the past, because that was several years ago and I didn't have the learning lessons that I have now, it just seemed like, oh, that person was a bad partner romantically, mm-hmm. not realizing like there was, you know, other things at play. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think like the more that we learn about how systems exist and also interact and also oppress us. Yeah. Um, we can see things a lot more clearly and, and, and then we don't even need 
to we it can actually like lessen the impulse to blame people yeah. right because we can actually like if we can all look at the systems and critique the systems and try to change them mm-hmm. um, then we don't need to change the individual we don't yeah. feel the need to change the individual or to blame the individual or to you know make the or or yeah make them feel bad for whatever it is that they're doing yeah and I think this lesson has been so interesting because it's happened in like the most domestic way ever which is you know by this person choosing to like make this grandiose dinner every night and like offering up to feed it to everyone we realize like oh well I like to cook and I like being creative in the kitchen but I don't have that space anymore because you're always there taking up that space and when we've asked for that space it's not given I think it's really easy for us, like for people who lean toward the service side of things Mm -hmm. to think that like, there's no way that this won't be appreciated. And you can in fact serve non-consensually, unsolicited advice, um, trying to help people in the way that you want help and not in the way that they want help. Yes. Um, It comes up a lot with like love languages, right? Like if, if, if mine is different from yours and I'm trying to give to you in my love language and not in yours, then you're not going to feel the, the love. I'm obsessed with love languages. Cool. I had this thing that didn't work out with someone just because of our love languages. Mine was words of affirmation. That was not in, that was maybe like the last one for mm-hmm. them. Um, and theirs was, um, was what's the time, quality time mm-hmm. and physical touch. But in my mind, I'm like, say something. Why don't you say something? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I really need to hear these things. Um, and, you know, it's just such a the learning curve. And, yeah. you know, the relationships are just so hard. Well, and, and how much and how much effort and energy do you want to expend on exactly teaching someone how to do that for you? For like, you. Yeah, that's yeah. the mo- It's like, and that's it. And that's something that I've been. I've had a lot of conversations about with, you know, uh, my, my other friends of color who are also, who are in like, um, relationships with other white people, which is, are you ready to do that a certain level of emotional, emotional labor? Cause no matter what it's going to happen. And I think in the past, maybe some of us have been resentful without knowing that that emotional labor had to happen. So it was kind of like, okay, I'm in this relationship with this person. Oh wait, why am I having to do all this work? But the reality is it's like, it's going to be work no matter what. Do you, are you in a space to do that? Do you like, you know, is your tank full? Can you take that on? Is it worth it with that person? How many spoons do you have? How many spoons do you have? Cause that's the reality of it. Reality of it. But then the flip side is like, is your partner open? Are they listening? Yeah. Are they trying to like take in the training, right? Mm -hmm. Like, cause you don't want to have to ask every time. So like, no, if this person is starting, hopefully they're not starting at zero. Exactly. (laughs) Just hope they're not at zero. (laughs) Right. But then like if they are or wherever they are along that journey, if they aren't then starting to predict like oh this is a moment this is a moment and like starting to shift that burden away from you for asking and training them over yeah. to like taking it onto themselves like yeah. yeah at what point is that a burden that needs to be shared and at yeah. what point is it a burden that should really be like taken away from somebody yeah 
And I think that to me has probably one of the most interesting things that I've been talking to people about is just that play of, yes, in an ideal world, we wouldn't have to do certain types of emotional labor and the person with the more, with more of the racial privilege would just be aware, but we're not there. So we have to like set these new boundaries for this back and forth that there's no manual for and society doesn't teach us about. Right. Well, I think we got to wrap up. No, I know. <laughs> um, you and I can keep talking for a second because there's a couple things I want to ask you. But um, yeah, but I do want to ask in wrapping up um, what uh, three things. So mm-hmm. like media, you know, books, movies, people, uh, family members, anything or a job that you had or like anything like that. Three things that you feel have brought you to exactly this moment in your life. Yeah. Um, Shirley, who we mentioned before with emotional labor, she also taught me what gaslighting was in between those two terms. Oh, I was like, I ran and never looked back. <laughs> that was another one for me too. Where I was like, Oh, oh yeah. my God. Yeah. yeah. I was like gaslighting. Oh, I know what that is. I actually, I just watched a movie where like gaslighting was happening and the woman was like, um, you know, you're doing this thing where, like, you're trying to make me feel like I'm crazy. Like, she just defined what gaslighting was, but it was before the word was known. Aww. And so I was like, oh, my God. Like, you're like, have, you're doing it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's hysterical. You're like, you yeah. got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. God, anyway. Which is so powerful in that way. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, shout out, Shirley, for those two terms. Um, I think the other thing was – in this like weird way, if I hadn't been in a relationship with that partner in the past, yeah, totally who had less than desirable behaviors. I probably wouldn't have taken the time to like assess and look back and see why I was feeling a certain kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that gratitude, even for the things that aren't so positive sometimes you, yeah you just gotta like take the lesson where you can find it and that's right. the best that you can do um i want to do a i want to do like a thanks i did two people and i wonder what that would be a book or um yeah an experience that you had maybe you know actually yeah i i do remember so this may be a little controversial, <laughs> but I think, so after that relationship, I was like, I just can't date another white man. Like I can't do it. And I went through like a period of time where I was like, I'm choosing not to date white men. It's not happening. Um, and I was in a relationship with a, an, another man who was mixed and he was half black, half Puerto Rican. And it was kind of the first relationship that I had gotten into with another man, but he was obviously a person of color after, you know, post the, the other like traumatic one that I've done a lot of growing from. And it was just so easy. Like there was just conversations that I didn't have to have that was just the response was just like, oh, I see you, you know, mm. oh, I hear you. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. And I realized that in those 
times I was so ready to invest like another 15 to 20 minutes into like, okay, well, this is why it upset me. And this is, you know, like the intricacies of that situation. I was like, oh yeah, you don't have to explain it. Like I get it. Um, and I learned a lot from, I've learned so much from the relationships I've had with people of color because, you know, one of the really great things about it is that you're just seen a lot more quickly. Um, and I think it's really important to know what that feels like so that you can set that expectation. Well, you know, maybe not expectation, but try to set that as a marker of sorts moving forward because unless you know what that's like, your baseline might just feel like you have to do so much emotional labor to be seen. Yeah. Um, so that for me was probably, was like a really important education. Huh. Um, so yeah. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> cool. I love that. It also shows, I think that you really value, I mean, the fact that you just chose like three people, I think it shows that you really value relationships and human connection and maybe that's where a lot of your personal growth comes from it's like the in between totally. you and me kind of thing yeah uh i just that word is coming up so much i'm like i'm always in the in between i think i just mm. said that yesterday i just watched um before sunrise and the best part of that movie i think is where she says i think if there's a god it's not in you or me it's right here. Ah! Yeah, I, I know. love that. I, I haven't I've never seen it. Yeah, oh, it's so good. It's well, so it's so good. true. I, oh my god! So I, I was also having conversations with that. So I have this like tattoo here, and that's mm -hmm. kind of what that symbol means. It's, it's a like, it's a triangle with a dot on top. It's like little cross, and you can't see it. Oh, it's a tiny top, cross. Okay. Yeah. You know this this like triangular dynamic of. I'm at one point, you're at the other point, and there's space in between us. And I think that the best outcome of whatever's happening between those two points is when the space between us is really like channeling a higher space. Yes. When it's something bigger than the sum of its parts. It has to be. Yeah. And I think that you really, at least for me, because I crave like high levels of intimacy and some people are just like, whoa, I can't do that. It's too much. Yeah, I have the same. And I'm like, I want more. Right. Like we um, can go deeper. There's yeah, deeper I'm like, to go. No, come on. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, but for me, it's like, I have to, I need that space because I need, I need a sacredness and I need something that it feels protected and I need something that feels safe. And I think that that's also something that people could try and practice more. And it's not easy to practice, but gratitude, again, yeah. is like the easiest way, I feel like, to feel spiritual or feel that something is sacred or really just like be so in tuned with really positive emotions that just get you out of yourself and like get you out of your small world and get you out of your ego and just humble you so that you can really connect with that person. The in-between is all good. Yeah. Yeah. There's good stuff in there. Good stuff. <laughs> 
All right, Stella. Well, I want to um, ask you where people can find you and your work. Uh, the Last Hartman, H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N. And then also just my website, StellaHartman.com. All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, thank you. I'm on Instagram at Mia Schachter. That's S-C-H-A-C-H-T-E-R. And you can follow the podcast at Share the Load Podcast. Special thanks to Pete Ziarto at Director Pete on Instagram for recording, editing, producing help and for removing all of my burps and to Tyler Fjeld for the music. You can reach me at podcast at sharetheloadinc.com. Yay. Yay, that's it.